0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting Sunday School partner, Dr. Scott Powell. Scott, hello. Hello, J.D. Thanks for having me back. Wow, that was a lot of enthusiasm.
1: I'm excited. Scott is excited. (laughs) This is a good day.
0: Scott is excited because this is our second episode of our Psalms season of Sunday School. And this week on Sunday School, we're going to talk about the first book of the five books of Psalms. That's right. And uh, to get us started... Uh, Here's Pillar Editor Ed Condon with Psalms 1 and
2: 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
1: the five books that we talk about with the Psalms, the Psalms themselves render are rendered that way. So it's, that's not something we're kind of making up and like the neat little insight, but yeah, the headings show up as book one over Psalm one, Psalm 42 starts book two and et cetera, et cetera. So they, they come to us this way. And if you're a Jew, and you see five books. I think you're automatically thinking back to the Torah. You're thinking back to the, the 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 foundation of the scriptures, which means God's instruction. So this is a way in which God wants to instruct us. And we also mentioned last week that the the kind of major movement of the Psalms, and it, it's a movement, but there's there's multi-directionality to it. I guess if that's not confusing. But we have psalms of lament and we have psalms of praise, and we're always kind of moving within the tension of that because part of what the psalms are trying to do is acknowledge the brokenness and pain of the world, the brokenness of our own sin and how we deal with that with the hope and the sure knowledge of God's restoration and God's redemption of the world. So the psalms are living within that tension, which actually makes them a beautiful tool for prayer for where we actually live. And so again, some of the major themes, especially for book one that we're going to talk about is the theme of Torah and Messiah. So how does God instruct? What does the scripture say? And who is the Messiah? We're going to, again, talk about lament and praise, and then the notion of faith and hope. Because again, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of a loss of something, we're waiting and we're trusting in God's in God's redemption. So we're going to refer back again and again to the, the five books but one thing that um, we're going to capture probably at the end of this episode is that between each of the books, we'll see a series of blessings, these praises uttered to God, right? So when we get to book five, so on, and book 40, or, I'm sorry, in Psalm 41, it ends with a praise. It ends with a blessing of God. When we get to the end of the whole thing, at the end of book five, we'll see that it, the way it closes is five Psalms that do oh, this, it's actually wow. six of them. Wow. So there's no more Psalms, but it's actually going to close with six blessings six doxologies that we call the alleluia psalms wow so it shows us that now this whole story is kind of being wrapped up what in this an very, amazing very structure way. i mean what a cool like just
0: uh, structural genius
1: and very intentional i mean clearly there's somebody has thought through this or many somebody's
0: scott i had a question as i was thinking about our episode last week between when we recorded it last week and right now and maybe it's a goofy question i don't know but you know you were saying um that there have been sort of different ideas about what the five books might have been for. And um, you have advanced this idea that it is structured to um, represent the history of God moving with the people of Israel. So there's a a story arc here, right? There's a narrative arc. And you described it last week as a a very beautiful narrative arc that ends in hope and things like that. Is it possible that the Psalter is um, effectively the score of a multi-day liturgical performative opera about the history of Israel? I, does, is that crazy to think that... The, the like a rock some, opera? Not kind of like thing? a rock opera, but is it possible that the whole thing might have been performed, as it were, as, as a as a storytelling of Israel's history with God in one kind of thing? Is that crazy? Gosh, now that you say it, I hope it, I hope I, it is. I hope it is. I'm no not trying idea. to be silly either. Like no, I, just I know occurred you're not to trying
1: me, to be silly. But like, it
0: would be a long opera, but is it possible that the breaks are effectively intermissions in a long retelling of a story?
1: I, I only doubt it because I feel like we have a lot of information. We have a lot of records and things like the Mishnah uh, that talk about the way in which liturgy was performed. And we, we have a surprising amount of, of stuff on which psalms were prayed when and where. And we don't have anything Somebody like would that. have told Some, us if there was a multi-day that performative that somebody, opera. Right. I would think. The Mishnah is pretty detailed in the way that yeah. it goes through the liturgical stuff. And okay, I feel like someone would have told us. Do you
0: think it could be? I mean, it seems to me. Do you Well, think we this... still have
1: four more episodes, so I think there's time. <laughs> For us to do just for that. For us
0: to do just that. Yeah. Not us. God, was but saying it. Ed. I, it would seem to me, yeah, Ed would perhaps be the leader of the thing that's featured solos, but it would seem to me <laughs> that there is a way in which this whole thing together, although it would take a long time, does take you through a journey, as it were. I mean... It, was, it does. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it does. And it's, again, what, it, what it's capturing. Again, this is what a great... I keep wanting to say rock opera, which is not what you're
0: saying. down, <laughs> down, 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 down. Happy is the man. Okay, I'm going to stop. No, now.
1: that's good. I was going to start to... Insert, um, but it—that's <laughs> uh, not
0: what these people are listening for. Well, it might be. I don't okay. know. I don't
1: know what they want. Um, but it is doing. The, I mean, what does a great opera do? It tells an epic narrative, right? They exactly. Tell that's epic what I think Stories it, yeah. and songs. So,
0: yeah, this is like the Ring. You know, the sort of the Ring series for not Tolkien, but Wagner. Sort of like the. Oh, Wagner. So yeah, the series of the, opera of grand about about epic opera. No yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. No, it is, and that's why. Well, and in fairness, the, the imaginations of many musicians and composers and artists have been captured by the Psalms Mm -hmm. because they are doing that. They are capturing something. And so there's, you know, there's a reason that you, that you asked that question. I I hope that at some point somebody did that. That'd be awesome. Um, But as it's retelling the story of salvation history, there's, there's a number of issues that come up throughout the Psalms in particular, but in salvation history in general, um, as we go down this road in the next few episodes, I mean, the problem of evil is very, very real here. The problem of anger, the problem of what to do with injustice in the world, there's there's a lot of cries in the Psalter there's, and those lament psalms that we talked about, which are interspersed constantly with praise as well, because we acknowledge that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our lamentations, God is still working and he's still there. But there's a real reckoning with why the world is the way that it is the salvation history is trying to capture. And I just want to mention uh, from the outset, one of the, the, um, I'm not going to call it a problem because that's not right. But one of the things that frustrates people sometimes, or is sometimes a stumbling block to people's understanding of the Bible and salvation history is this problem of evil, uh, and this problem of justice. I I think back to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the capstone. It's the closing of the Torah, particularly by the Pentateuch. And Deuteronomy closes by saying basically, okay, Israel, here's all the things that God has set out. Here's God's expectation for your life and your nation as a people. If you're faithful to these things, here's all the ways in which you're going to be blessed, right? You're going to have verdant fields. You're going to have crops. You're going to have land. Your animals are going to, you know, be wonderful. All these things are good. If you're not faithful, if you are unfaithful to his law, here are all the consequences. And if you read Deuteronomy carefully, there's a very here and now sense to all of those things that if we're good, we're going to get rewarded here and now. If we're mm-hmm. bad, we're gonna get punished here and now. And throughout the course of salvation history, even the Jewish history, there's a there's not a very well-defined view of the afterlife for most of this. I mean, there's there's things, there's inklings here and there. Yeah. But the the understanding was that in God's justice, if we do what's right, we'll be rewarded. If we do what's wrong, we'll be punished. And that's how do De- even Deuteronomy itself is sort of set forth. Now, none of that is wrong because the people of God have a limited understanding of God's revelation at this point in salvation history. God has only revealed so much about himself and what he has revealed is true. And his justice is true. All of this, all of the Psalter and all of salvation history can only rightly be understood through the lens of Jesus Christ. But one of the things you see the Psalter trying to struggle with is this notion that as salvation history moves on, what we thought was going to happen doesn't always happen. In other words, the wicked sometimes are the ones who prosper more than anybody, and the good, the holy, the righteous, the devout often suffer more than most, and the people of God start to ask themselves, hold hold on a second, this doesn't tend to work how we thought it was going to work, and God doesn't just punish things in the here and now, and this immediately doesn't happen, why not? And so why do the wicked prosper? Why do the holy get trampled down? And so one of the things the Psalms are trying to do is wrestle through that question, and so again, this is why there's, there's there's a constant tension through them of this lamentation, this praise, and this questioning of, okay, God, we're struggling to understand your justice in the world. Where is justice? What is right? How are we rewarded and punished? And so as a way to sort of begin into that question or begin to suggest a way forward in that, we look at the beginning of book one, which is Psalm one. And Psalm one has also been suggested that uh, it's not So, so exactly part of book one. Some have suggested that it's something of a preface. Some have suggested that it was added later, maybe by the compilers in this time period. There are some ancient manuscripts that actually have Psalm one in red ink that suggest that it was actually either added later or kind of an addendum or or actually a preface or a prologue. Because again, it's, it's getting us into the whole thing. And so it begins by saying, verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, his Torah, literally, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. Okay. So first of all, and again, at the risk of taking this a little too abstract, what the Psalter is beginning to show us is trying to answer the question of what is justice and more specifically, what is the just man? Who is the just man? Who is the one that we're supposed to be like the one who meditates on God's law day and night. And so according to the Psalter, what is the just man like? He's like a tree. Yeah. Right. Planted by streams of living water, which sounds, I don't know, to our, our modern ears, it might even sound trite. Like, Oh, he's like a tree. Cool. Whatever. Planted by streams of living water. But but in a very real way, and at the risk of sounding, I don't know, too abstract or fluffy or, or, or weird, mm-hmm. we need to have an understanding of what a tree is, which sounds silly. But again, the, the Psalms take creation very seriously. Mm-hmm. They take God's ordering of the world very seriously. And they take the question of when all is stripped away from you, where do we find God? You take that question very seriously. And I... I in my house um, here in Colorado, where I where I live and where my kids are growing up, we've lived in our house for 14 years. We have a massive cottonwood tree in our front yard. Mm-hmm. And it is it is a beast. And people even mention it when they come to our house because it's so big. And my kids have built tree forts in it. They've been climbing it for their entire lives. We've got swings hanging from it. And I hope that in my my kids' memory growing up, this tree will hold this, I don't know, place of importance, right? Yeah. That this is a place where we played, where we hung out, where we climbed, where we hid, where we swung. And the reason I, I kind of point that out is that it, the ancients always talked about this notion that God wrote two books. Have you heard this before? He wrote the book of creation, yeah, which is yeah. the mm-hmm. natural world. And yeah. he wrote the book of the scriptures. Yeah, And you actually need one to interpret the other. Yeah, right. Not in the sense of, of like nature worship or anything weird like right. that, but in the sense that the scriptures... Assume a certain knowledge of the natural world and its order and its rhythms upon us. Yeah. And we need those. I mean, look at Jesus. The parables. Lord assumes so much the agricultural so knowledge yeah. because that was the culture. That's how yeah. that's how they operate. Right. Which actually puts us sometimes at a disadvantage. Because totally, we don't think as concretely as the Jewish people did. Mm-hmm. We think in abstractions. Yeah, the Greeks thought in abstractions. Remember, the we Jews hardly and the know what water is. For goodness' sake, what's that? We
0: hardly know what water is. For goodness' sake, without understanding its chemical composition.
1: Oh, <laughs> yes, that is true. But I mean, I, I was thinking about Plato the other day and his notion of tree-ness. What is the yeah. essence of a tree? I think the Jews would have hated that. They're like, right. it's just a tree. Right. What is tree-ness? Well, and when when I say, you know, what is the essence of tree? Automatically in both of our heads, I'm sure a tree appears. We have yeah. a picture of something. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a poet that I like named William Carlos Williams. Are you yeah. familiar with him? Yeah. He yeah. wrote a poem called The Red Wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. And he has this notion that there are no ideas but in things. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem of modernity is that we have allowed ourselves to become abstracted from creation, from the natural world. And again, I'm from part of the world that, you know, tends toward a love of nature and, you know, kind of hippie stuff. And I have a love for that. But it is the fact that until modernity, until really the industrial revolution, there was no such thing as atheism. Yeah. Because when you actually have a real connection with the natural world, there is a dependence on something outside of yourself. Which we've lost. So again, all of this is to say, when the scriptures begin, when the psalms begin by saying, "Okay, what is the righteous man like?" He's like a tree. Mm -hmm. I hope that when my kids read that, they'll be like, "Oh, that cottonwood tree in our front yard. It was strong. It was noble. It was there. But also, whenever we got a big snowstorm, it would lose a bunch of branches, and they would crash down in our roof. And there were times of the year that it looked like it was dead, even though it was not. And then it had new life in the spring. Yeah. And you know, I
0: told my son the other day, who's five, that we're going to have to take a tree out of our front yard that's dead and he was was so sad you know but we've been we've been working this tree and working the and it's not coming back and he was so i said i think it's just based on how much is falling apart i said i think this is going to be the year we're going to have to take it out Mm -hmm. he said dad um did you try watering it? <laughs> and I, felt, I was like, I felt so indicted. I was like, Dude, oh, yes. Did you? But no, I told him like, well, we don't. I told oh, him like, geez, well, we geez. don't want to really water the, 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 the tree's problem. Is not that it's not getting enough water. It's a very large elm. It's just not healthy. That's fair. And uh, and so, but ah. he he was so like, Dad, you've got to make an effort here. But I was thinking, I, I hope this is not too much of a tangent. But um, yeah, I really like the poet Joyce Kilmer, who who is a deeply Catholic. Poet in the First World War, and he, he wrote a lot of beautiful poems. But people think of him a lot for that poem. People think it's goofy, which is Trees, I Think That I Shall Never See a Poem as Lovely. As oh, it is. yeah! Oh, yeah! Yeah, I okay, mean, and, I and it's were, kind of, yeah, of yeah, so Kilmer wrote that, and people think, oh, it's so childish and stuff like right. that. But two stanzas or verses stood out to me. Um, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. Um, he sees the tree as in sort of um, fixed in praise. And oh, then, uh, wow. and then he says it's that that's really b- beautiful because of the, its divine nature. He says uh, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree, and it's goofy, right? I mean, it's sort of. But he, he's actually—I wonder the extent to which he's drawing from Psalm One. Yeah, and Kilmer writes more poems about tr- his poems oh. about trees give way to poems about the cross, and um, yes, in a way that's it a kind of progression. All the
1: fathers of the church called
0: the tree. right, exactly. But right. I mean, there's something too that like um, the tree is fixed in praise of God. That's right. Yeah.
1: Well, there's there's a reason I think that again, not to belabor the point, but there's a reason that the human story begins with a problem with a tree, and the human story is remedied by a tree, by Jesus actually taking himself upon a tree. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's a reason these things yeah. are there. So the Psalms are not dwelling on this or, or beginning or commencing the whole story without reason. But when I hear the righteous man being like a tree, again, if you have no knowledge that there are times of the year that a tree might look dead, even though it's not, that branches are broken off, but the tree remains, right? There are things that happen in the life of a of Would all that of be us. true in
0: the ancient Near East with no winter?
1: Uh well maybe not the same um seasonal kind of a thing. Although there were seasons. There were there were plants that, that you know, in the in the feasts um, things grew and things were harvested and things would be replanted. So not to the not the degree that we in the Western Hemisphere think of it, but um, Saint Paul in the book of Romans pulls heavily on the metaphor of a tree with its branches yeah. broken off mm-hmm. and then branches grafted on to yeah. describe the people of Israel. Yeah. So in other words, trees can can ebb and flow, streams, a stream of water. Here in Colorado, we know that you know there's times of the in the in if you go to a stream, there's a river by my house. If you go in October or November, it trickles to almost nothing. Yeah, exactly. But if you go in May, it's right. gonna be a
0: torrent. Yeah. It's
1: massive. Mm-hmm. There's a river that the people of Israel cross the Jordan river when they entered into the promised land in the book of Joshua. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Holy land before, but
0: oh, I shook my head. No, for you, I I I
1: haven't either, but the traditional site that Jesus was believed to have been baptized is again, traditionally believed to have perhaps been the spot where Israel crossed the Jordan river into the promised land. And if you go there today, it's kind of an unsafe area. But if you go there today, you could literally jump from one, uh, one bank to the other. But in the ancient world, because of irrigation systems, in the time of year that Joshua points out that they were going to cross into the promised land, it would have been miles wide Mm. because it was massive. And so for the people of Jericho to see this nation on their border and think, there's no way, what are they going to do? And then God parts the water. So a stream of living water can mean a whole lot of different things. And so what the Psalms are beginning to tell us is that Because of our understanding of creation, we have to have an understanding of what it means to live in this tension between lament and praise, between strength and weakness, between seemingly—we're going to look at a bunch of psalms about a suffering servant who seems utterly defeated, but the reality is not that. So I think it's important to just kind of begin that way because the psalms beg us to meditate. They beg us to reflect. They're, they're not the kind of things that we can just plow through and find the historical context and kind of bing, bang, boom. But they demand uh, meditating. And actually, on that note, what it says the just man does, who is like a tree planted by water, in verse 2, it says, on the Lord's Torah, he meditates. And that's the second word I want to talk about. And the word for meditate in Hebrew is the word haggah. So H-A-G-A-H, haggah. JD, do you remember what the term haggah literally means? Growl? Wow. Well, you've, you've, blown my punchline, but yes, that's, that's one like of the, the growl the of, of a lion. Actually, this is really helpful. So you're probably pulling that or whatever tool you're using might be pulling it from the book of Isaiah.
0: You think I looked that up and didn't know it? I, I do. I just, this season of Sunday school, I want to know the answers to some of the questions. That's good. Okay. So haggah is a word that means growl.
1: Well, I want to talk about what it doesn't mean because when we read
0: in Psalm one, that the righteous man
1: is the one who haggahs the Torah of the Lord. The way that it's usually translated is meditate. meditate. And
0: I'll be honest, but I have always pictured with someone is a person with a little book of scripture sitting under a tree right. at the banks of the river, his right. legs are folded, he reads a little scripture, he puts his legs out, he has arms out, he says om a few times, he's meditating upon the law of the Lord.
1: Yeah. And that's that's what that's that's the image I wanted to evoke.
0: That is the image that I get.
1: And that's the image that I think most Westerners get because when we think of meditation, we think of a mental practice. That's we think right. of a quiet practice. Uh-huh. We think of a very internal practice to think about. But that's yeah. not what haggah means. Oh, cool. Haggah is always concrete and Haga is always vocal. It's always exterior. So um, there is a reference in the book of Isaiah to a lion who is... Um, feasting on a carcass. It's kind of a gross uh, image, but a lion who's feasting on a carcass and he's so engrossed in it. If you've ever seen like, I have a dog, you have a dog. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen the dog, like really going, so engrossed in it that the lion doesn't see the hunter coming behind it. That's actually Haga to be so engrossed in something like eating, that it's, it's, it's like a cat purring. Um, if you've ever seen, well, you've never been to the Holy Land, but if you've seen like, even in movies and stuff, like a, a Jewish yeshiva where rabbis or even small children are studying the Torah. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Brooklyn. See them, I've seen this. Yeah, you'll see yeah. them rocking back and forth. Right. Is and that, that, that haggai
0: So when contemporary Jewish people... Recite scripture sometimes from memory in a way yes. that is rhythmic That's and right. tonal. That is a Haggai. Yeah. That's all what of those, those things thing are is Blessed is the man who does that kind of recitation of uh, of scripture.
1: Yeah. And what that doesn't mean is, okay, well, I got to have my hands in the air. I have to be really loud and praise. But what it means is it is all... In- all-encompassing. It's all-engrossing. To haggah the Lord's word is not just to think about it. That's part of it. But it can mean groaning. It can mean crying. It can mean sobbing. It can mean laughing. It can mean wailing. It can mean singing. It can mean dancing. When David dances before the ark, he's haggahing. That's actually what he's doing. But the the idea is... Again, we can't forget that the, the book of the Psalms, the name comes from Psalmoi, meaning singing or, or song. We talk about reading the Psalms, but we can't forget that in the tradition of the church, there's always much more of a vocal association with the Psalms.
0: Is this is this um, Psalm 1, does the idea in Psalm 1 correlate to 1 Thessalonians' idea of praying without ceasing?
1: I, I think it does, not, not in a, a really direct way. Oh, okay. Um, there's no specific linguistic Connection, but but actually, well, maybe, you got to take a shot. My no, friend. actually, JD, Matt. Now that you say that,
0: <laughs> it's okay. No, now
1: that, like- now that you say that, I think it's worth considering though that it should again. It's more than just reading. It's more than just a mental exercise, right? And all of our acts should be hagah. But but again, for the Jews, hagah is a very specific kind of thing. And when they enter, and again, you've seen, again, you've gone to Brooklyn, you've seen some of these things. When you enter into reading the scriptures. You enter into it. it you're, it's your full body. It's a whole bodily movement, which is important because, again, the closest thing we have is is the mass, which is a bodily thing. Now, we can go through the motions, and we can just kind of do it in a rote way, but standing, sitting, kneeling, smelling, eating, tasting, dipping hands in water, it's meant yeah. to be a, a very visceral sort of a thing.
0: And if you've ever prayed um the divine office in choir with, at a monastery of monks or yes. nuns, it's like very hard, maybe monks who are listening would disagree with me, but from my experience, it's very hard not to be in the presence of what's happening because like to sort of zone out because yeah, it's right. so, um, uh, encompassing, encompassing like visceral and encompassing. Right yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And so I, again, I don't want to belabor the point, but what, if we want to understand how to be righteous, it means we have to give ourselves to God's Torah with all of ourselves, mm-hmm. all of our hearts. And that doesn't mean you have to stand up and, and shout or whatever. I mean, we do it in the ways in which we are. God made us and we are comfortable with, but it's meant to be a, a bodily thing. It's meant to be a whole person. So he, this one who, who hagaz the Lord, his Torah, he's like a tree planted by water, yields fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither in all that he does. He prospers. And then it compares it. It juxtaposes it with the wicked, what are the wicked like? What's the opposite of this? The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, with the, which the wind drives away. Again, if you've never experienced chaff and how easy it is for the wind to pick it up and blow it wherever it wants to, that analogy is not going to actually work for you unless you have a sense of what that means, right? And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, Again, the psalm is telling you, okay, we're going to enter into a story that is going to help us wrestle through the problem of evil and good in the world. And why does it not seem like the righteous receive what they're due and why do the wicked seem to prosper? What do we do with that? How do we live in that tension? So then we turn to Psalm number two. And I already mentioned that most of the Psalms in book one are all Psalms of David or in the spirit of David or in honor of David or something. And, of course, David was known, he was best known for being a king and also a what? A prophet. He was a shepherd. A prophet. He was a shepherd. I mean, I, I suppose he did some No, prophet kinds. was wrong. Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, he was a king and a shepherd, right? So we have to understand that for a Hebrew who would have read a this. A Saul fighter. A Saul fighter, right, as you said, a Goliath slayer. Whatever you, you a use Goliath a slayer. <laughs> um, so, for a Hebrew who would have read this first, the first book of the Psalms is all about their king. And when we say their king, we mean their king. They they might not have lived in a time where David reigned or or even lived, but he was their king, David's like George
0: Washington king. is our president. Yeah, he's okay. their guy, but much more than that.
1: But much more than that. So, um, we need to think of these as hymns. Would it be fair to the say
0: king? he was their king, like Peter is our pope? For a sort of yes. e- cultural ethos and significance, yeah,
1: there's probably limitations to that analogy. Sure, but I, but okay. I like that;
0: it's better than George Washington. And we we yeah.
1: even call the popes we, they we say call them Peter, Peter right? Peter. Yeah, we call right. them Peter. So they exercise
0: the, the petrine way. office, and yeah. And, oh, and a king exercises the Davidic, the kingship, Davidic right. office, the yeah, Davidic okay. throne, the yeah, Davidic okay.
1: authority. Yeah, I think that's the right analogy. I, I want to read. I read last week uh, a, a line from um, Eugene Peterson's book, Answering God, and I want to read you what he says about David. And I actually love this passage. He says this, um, and again, this is a Protestant pastor who has done some, some brilliant biblical interpretation, but he says this, the person in scripture who has the most extensively told story is also the person who is most shown to be at prayer. The outside of his life is told in story. The inside of his life is told in prayer. The books of Samuel and Chronicles give Mm. plot to David's story, but the the Psalms show his passion. Mm. There's a sense in which we can be spectators to the narratives of our own lives, detached and gossipy. Prayer is a way in, the way to receive and deepen the meaning of the narrative. Faith is the most interior of human acts, and prayer is the means- by which holiness and health is grafted into the unfaithful parts. It's inserted into the empty parts. Mm. And I love that because, again, David, we know more about David from his youth to his young life to his being on the run from Saul to his kingship to his being an old elderly man. We know more about the life of David than any other person in the scriptures. And here we see David, the the interior life, that the exterior life kind of begs us for. Is very, very
0: beautiful. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back with Psalm 2.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Oliveira, and I produce this show, Sunday School. There is so much to love about this podcast. Scott offers such refreshing insights about Scripture. A lot of his insights have helped me feel more comfortable with the Bible, and I hope they've helped you too. If you enjoy listening to Sunday School as much as I do— I'd like to ask you to please consider becoming a paying subscriber to the Pillar. The support of paying subscribers makes projects like Sunday School possible. We have several subscription plans available, including one that's only $5 a month. If you're already a paying subscriber, you're awesome. And maybe you could consider gifting a subscription to someone else. For more information, visit pillarcatholic.com/slash subscribe. That's pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. Thanks, guys.
1: Okay, so I want to spend a little bit of time haggling like I said, Psalm number two. Uh, and Psalm number two, a lot of scholars believe that Psalm two was, a, well, they're all hymns, but specifically a lot of people believe that Psalm number two was a hymn that was presumably written by David to be sung at the coronation of his son Solomon. So when his son
0: receives the crown. Ooh. So in
1: other words... Uh, the, the psalm that was sung when his son became king. So, it really
0: doesn't open very. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? It really opens kind of rough or uh, it's, it's, it's not quite crowned with many crowns. Unless you understand the historical
1: context of the world in which he's being crowned into and the world into which... David was crowned, which was a world in which all the nations were conspiring against him, yeah. where there was an evil king out to get him, where the nations were trying to divide the people of Israel. So the, the, yeah, it, it starts in a very, in kind of a loaded way, but again, to know David's story begins to make some sense out of this. So I think there's a lot of language here that, that alludes to this. Again, it's, it's a guess. It's an educated guess, I think, um, but I want to read this together. So Psalm number two, verse one, why do the nations conspire? and the people's plot in vain. Guess what the Hebrew word there is for plot? Any guesses? Haga. Oh. So why do the nations conspire and the people, uh, yeah, the people's Haga in vain? That's exactly right. They're doing the same kind of thing that the righteous man is doing, but very good. But not not with the law
0: of the Lord, but with their plotting.
1: Very good, yeah. So the kings of the earth set themselves, and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his, what? Anointed. Any idea what the Hebrew is there? Hebrew word for anointed? Tell me it's a God. It's Messiah.
0: Oh, okay. Wow. So his Messiah. Against the Lord and his Messiah, his Messiah. So
1: Messiah is just the, the... The anointed one. Yeah, the anointed one. So the one who is anointed. So when uh, the
0: kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take out together against the Lord and his anointed and his Messiah and his Messiah so to
1: Messiah something literally just means to To anoint oil on it Uh so you would Messiah use your thumb and just you Messiah someone at confirmation or something Uh yeah okay yeah so so and it's to set aside but the person who is Messiah sort of par excellence in Israel is the king yeah because he's set aside what to be a visible sacramental reality of God's sovereign reign so that's an important line that's going to come back so I want you to to picture in your minds the, the king Kings and the rulers of the earth, they're taking counsel with each other, and it says they're hagging in vain, right? The psalmist says. So I I like to picture it in my mind, right? So how how I don't know if this sounds childish. How are they seated to you? What do they look like?
0: I was picturing them in a room not unlike that of the Jedi Council.
1: Ooh, I like it. Is
0: that all right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I why not? All right. They're gathered in and and yeah, they're gathered in a room. How are they seated? I see them in a circle or a semicircle. I saw them in
0: a circle, much like the Jedi Council.
1: Yeah, and I and, and, and I like that image because I think putting some pictures with this is what the Psalms want us to do. Remember, the Hebrews don't like abstractions, mm-hmm. they like the concrete. And so you have these rulers of the earth, these kings sitting, circle, semicircle, whatever, a huge table, and they're haggahing. And remember, haggah is always vocal. So, like you said, they're murmuring, they're grumbling, they're plotting against the Lord and his anointed, right? And this is different. It's a it's a juxtaposition of the haggah in Psalm one. Right? Yeah. Because what is the just man murmuring? He's murmuring the in the beginning. God created yeah. the heavens and the earth, and the you know the hero Israel. The Lord is your God. The Lord alone. There's there's a kind of murmuring. There's yeah. a kind of you know something. There's haggai, but it is the words of the Torah. Yeah. But the rulers and the kings of the earth, they're going, they're gathering. It says to conspire, mm-hmm. and they're also murmuring something. They're murmuring plots. They're murmuring plans against the Lord and His Messiah. Right. Which, so we have the, the term anointed in my translation. The Hebrew word is Messiah. Any guess what the Greek word is? Because remember, eventually this was translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint. Do you know the Greek word there?
0: Christ? Yeah,
1: his Christ. Which again, adds some punch to this, yeah. right? Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The Lord, and anointed is just fine. That's what it is. But we know that... The Christ, the Messiah is always the anointed one, Mm -hmm. anointed what to be set aside for the king. So Jesus, whenever you see, (laughs) I always remind myself when I read the gospels, whenever it talks about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, it's just literally saying King Jesus, Jesus the king. Not, it's not his last name as I thought it was when I was little. So we have these kings of the earth. They're sitting in a circle or whatever. They're mumbling, they're conspiring against God, Yahweh and his king. So there's kind of twofold here. So you might remember if you've heard the story that it was actually King David who was the one who reunited all 12 tribes Uh of Israel. And when he does this, I think it was in first Samuel, perhaps it says he was surrounded by all the pagan armies. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, when this Psalm may have been written at a time when David was thinking back, he was remembering and recalling how all the other nations were forming alliances. They were gathering together. They were plotting against him and against the God of Israel. I I'm reminded of, uh, and I, I, I don't want to put words in David's yeah. mouth, but I think it's, it's fair. Remember when, um, David was, was going up against Goliath. What do you have? You have the nations, the pagan nations. You had a giant Goliath shouting blasphemies against not just Israel, but against the king of Israel, against Mm -hmm. Saul, but also against Yahweh himself, which is actually what sparked David into action. He says, not just, hey, we're cowering because there's a political victory we might not get— but this guy is shouting blasphemies against the living God,
0: and and his anointed king. Even and if you don't, king. even if you don't think Saul's a good king, even if he was a child, it's like if there was a yep. person who didn't, if happened to think that the Pope at a particular moment was not a good Pope, they would still, uh, which I yes. it's hard for me to imagine, but they they would still be upset if someone was besmirching them because yeah. they occupy the Petrine office or the kingship that's absolutely right. right
1: yeah and and in fairness by the time i think by the time david shows up he also has been anointed by samuel that's right. as the future king yeah that's now, right. all still on the throne yeah. that's fine but but again I, I just wonder what's going on in the back of david's mind as there's a kind of haggah that yeah. Goliath is shouting when
0: he's fighting goliath as yes. he's
1: fighting so he's conspiring they're conspiring what's the content of these rulers murmurings verse three it says, let us burst their bonds asunder. Let us cast their cords from us. So in other words, they want to rebel against the Lord and his king. They want yeah. to rebel against Yahweh and his anointed one. They want to break free from the God of Israel and the king who sits on his throne. Which, again, which actually bespeaks
0: a kind of universal recognition of that.
1: Yes, that's absolute. It Sorry, surprises me. The no,
0: it surprised me a great deal because you would think the kings would say, let's get him, but not he has it over. He's lording it over us or a king of the center of the or universe or and something. And
1: granted, this is David's telling of it. Yeah. It's David's perspective. Oh, on, on, so
0: David is saying the they're, they're kings are conspiring against us because they don't want to fall under the law of the Lord.
1: Whether they realize it or Whether not. Whether they realize it That's not. the reality. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, I, at the risk of putting words in David's mouth, it's a good point. But yeah. David is presumably seeing the truth of what they're saying. Because mm-hmm. we're not just another political entity. Yeah. We're not just another nation, right? Yeah. So this is a big deal. Um. So note that what's being said here, like you said, it's far more far more wide reaching than just David's personal situation. There's a greater sacramental reality. So Mm -hmm. the nations are plotting against God. They're plotting against his King. They want to break free. And what's God's response? I love God's response to them. Verse 4. Oh,
0: God laughs. He who sits in heaven laughs. laughs. The Lord has them in derision.
1: Yeah, he laughs. So yeah. there's a kind of haggah on God's part now. Mm-hmm. Right? He's he's responding. There's He's not concerned, in other words. So his haggah is in response to their haggah.
0: So the, the thing that's set up here is this is the coronation of Solomon. Presumably. at the Presumably the coronation of Solomon. At the coronation of Solomon, there's this setup where the kings of the earth, the powers of the earth are... Conspiring, plotting, murmuring against Israel and Israel's God, wanting to be free of the bonds of rulership of Israel's God and God laughing in response. Correct. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, if it is Solomon's coronation, that specific political situation isn't happening in that exact way at that time. But what I think David is trying to say, if this is what David's context is... Is that this is the nature of the Davidic throne? This is the nature of the kingdom of Israel, is that you will always have the nations wanting to conspire and break free from the sovereignty of God.
0: And you will always have a claim to the sovereignty of God. I mean, the most interesting thing for me about that is it would be not unlike the Pope saying, the Pope wouldn't say it because it doesn't sound very ecumenical, but it would be not unlike the Pope saying other Christian religions don't want to, you know, are uh, anti Catholic because they don't want to fall under the sovereignty of the Pope
2: or they yeah, don't want to recognize
0: and right. accept this. Yeah.
1: That's absolutely right. And actually hang on to that. Cause I want to come back to that in just a second, because I think there's something important here. So God haggaz their Hagga uh, And then it says verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury and say, I have set my King on Zion, my Holy Hill. Right? So who is he? He's God who's speaking to them, the Kings of the earth. And so in other words, God is saying, I have put, my king in Jerusalem and he's not going anywhere. Which is partially ironic because we know that in the course of the compilation of the Psalter, the king has gone somewhere. The king's not on the throne. Where is he? We've lost him. We don't have this reality. But it's suggesting that there is perpetuity to this. There's a there's a, an everlasting nature to this. But God is essentially saying to the nations of the earth, stop your plotting. It's useless. This is what I have established. I am the one who plants my king, and he's not going anywhere, in other words. So his kingdom will stand, even in the times that it doesn't look like it will, right? And then something interesting happens in verse 7. And in verse 7, there's a shift in tone, and the Psalms do this a lot. There's a different voice that begins to speak, And so all of a sudden, the I of verse 7 becomes the king himself, not God anymore. And it says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, so now it's the king speaking. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations, the goim, the Gentiles, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, yeah, notice that there's two people talking here. So in verse 7, the king himself or the Messiah begins to speak. Uh, And what is he saying? He's saying these words that God has spoken to him, you are my son, is actually coming from 2 Samuel 7. And I just want to read this passage real quick because there's uh, certain things that just go without saying for the Hebrew people that, unfortunately for us, they need to be said, right? And so the nature of the Davidic kingdom, what that actually looks like, is all laid out in the book of 2 Samuel. And I just want to say a word about this because Jesus is very much going to pull from this.
0: I remember this Mm -hmm. verse. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here. No, do it. uh, This stands out to me because it's in the book of Hebrews.
1: It's quoted.
0: Yeah, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. It's quoted a number of uh, times. The author of the book of Hebrews expresses that. Christ is the fulfillment of this, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Absolutely right.
1: Yeah. It's also quoted uh, when Jesus is baptized.
0: This is my beloved son. It's begotten, But begotten you is not the same as with you I'm well pleased. So there's at least a little difference there. Huh?
1: There is a little bit of a difference there. But again, notice what's actually happening at the baptism. In a certain sense that the baptism, Jesus' crowning is being made manifest to the world. Mm-hmm. And so the voice of God the Father, at least in part, speaks the words of Psalm 2. Because Jesus'
0: baptism is a kind of coronation. It's a revelation, I would yeah, say. Okay. So
1: Jesus is always the king. Yeah. But it's a revelation to the rest of us. that oh, well, You
0: know, you can be king, king before your coronation.
1: That's right. David was. But I want to read real quick. I'm in Second Samuel 7. I want to read verse 12 really quick. 2 Samuel 7, by the way, this is the moment, this, this beautiful moment when all of David's battles are finally done, at least for a while. And there's peace in the land of Israel. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital. He actually spent a really long time just being king over one of the tribes and everybody else rebelled against him. So now for the first time, there's shalom in the land. There's peace. David's in his throne. And the rabbis all said that it's only because he's finally at rest that there's shalom that God can now establish his covenant with him in a certain sense. And this is the moment, if you remember, that David is sitting in his palace and he's looking at how great it is and how big it is and how made of cedar it is, and he says, oh, Shoot, God is still outside in the tent. He's still dwelling. The shekinah is still tabernacling in the driveway, and you know it's a nice it's a nice tent. Yeah, and that's when he
0: says we're going to make ourselves one heck of a temple.
1: We he says we have to make a house, and the Hebrew word for house is bet, right? B e t h. Usually, so Bethlehem, the Mm -hmm. house of bread. bread, Yeah, Uh, and there are three plays on the word bet that are really important that actually show up in this in this little narrative. Um, so David has this idea. He's like, I need to build a bet for God. I have a beautiful bet. I have a beautiful house. God doesn't have one. So I want to build a bet for God. So he turns to Nathan, the prophet, the kind of in-house prophet. And he says, Hey, this is my idea. I want to build God a temple. And Nathan's like, that's a great idea. Let's, let's get going. Let's make it happen. So Nathan goes to bed and God comes to him in a dream or in his sleep. And he says, okay, I need you to basically renege the building permit and, and go back to David and essentially say, That's great. You have your house. You want to build me a house, but I don't need a house. I don't need you to build me a building. I've been wandering in the wilderness with you guys for generations. Where did you get the idea that I need a house? I don't need a house. I want to build you into a house. Third use of house. I want to build you a kingdom. And David, you will be a house. And this house is going to be perpetual and everlasting. And it will hold the title of Messiah and the Son of God. And all these things will kind of accompany it. And it's where we are laid out the Davidic covenant. And what it says specifically, I'm in uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, which says, When your days are fulfilled, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you go lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring after you who will come out of your own body, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. He'll eventually, Solomon will eventually build a temple and I will establish a throne of his forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. So a couple of things happen here that we need to understand about the Davidic kingdom for Jesus to make sense, but also for the rest of the Psalms to make sense. Number one, it says that this kingdom is going to be the kind of kingdom that rules over other kingdoms. That's It's imperial in a certain sense, but in a spiritual sense, not a political sense, that It's not just a nation. It's a nation that has spiritual authority over other nations. That's number one. Number two, it's going to be everlasting. It will not come to an end, which doesn't seem to make sense in the time of David or his offspring, but it's only fulfilled in Jesus. Number three, there's a filial relationship, a familial relationship between the king and God. And from this point in time on, every king of Israel held the title son of God. Because they they were again meant to manifest this relationship, and number four, that the king would be called the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who is set apart. So it's in Second Samuel seven where all of these aspects of the kingdom that make the kingdom more than a political reality, but a sacramental reality, and a ultimately a Christological reality, all take form, right? So when David is now presumably speaking all these things over Solomon, he knows all that God has promised. He knows that the nations really will be his heritage. He knows that he really is the son of God, that that there's a reality to this filial relationship and that the words he is speaking over him actually have power and have authority over and against the murmuring and the grumbling and the conspiring of the nations and the kings of the earth, which is kind of cool. So um, if you go it's back... Not kinda cool. it, it's
0: not kind of cool. It's very cool. Uh, well, no, I'm just going to say, like, one of the most... And I, it is extraordinary the way in which the story of Scripture and God's intervention in Scripture so often um, reverses what would be an ordinary religious impulse yeah. and then makes something much more profound out of it. I mean, just like you would... Of course you would think that your God needs a house. Yeah, and right. But also, of course, the religious impulse of many cultures is to think that you will pass into a kind of deistic state yourself and be revered by your um, progeny rather than that they would eff- effectively su- succeed you in greatness and holiness.
1: Yeah, that's right. Which that's... which is the way that the kings tend to act. Yeah. It's just the problem Right, in the story. It's also why, I mean, again, from a kind of pedagogical level, if you think of not only the Psalms, but also, you know, Kings and Chronicles, for example, being taken to paper After the exile, when Israel is asking the question, man, how did things get so bad? How did we fall so far from this ideal? Um, If you go back to the story of of the kings, again, if you read Chronicles and Kings, it's litany after litany of the worst of the worst of all the Davidic kings. The kings in the north and the kings in the south, they all do everything that's horrible. And again, surely there was something good that they did that they could have been recorded, but they don't. It's just horribleness after horribleness. And I think part of the reason that Kings and Chronicles is so harsh on the kings is that in every other ancient Near Eastern culture and civilization, when you read the chronicles of all their kings and their Emperors it's the recitation their of their greatness. Everything they do is right. right. Every decision they make is correct. Every war they fight, they win. They're basically demigods. Yeah. And what Israel needs to be reminded of is that your king, though he has a filial relationship with God, is never a god. Your king is not God. God is God. Yeah. And your king is meant to be the representation, the window into that. But he himself is not God. So Israel feels perfectly free. The Bible feels perfectly free to talk about how horrible all of our kings are. Which again, on a political level, on a historical level, is unheard of historically. For a nation themselves to describe themselves in their own histories as terrible and the worst. And they do everything wrong. No civilization has ever done that except for Israel. And highlights all the worst of themselves, and the church,
0: and possibly the Irish.
1: Possibly the Irish, but there's a reason because God is God and we're not, Mm -hmm. and that's always meant to be embedded. This is part of the answer the people of Israel give to the problem of how did we go so far? Is we forgot that they're not God. We forgot that we are not God. So, so if the nations are conspiring against him, if the the king is meant to take security in this reality that he is God's son, why is this a secure idea? It's a secure idea because again, the, the nations. The kings of the earth are plotting against him. And the idea of the sonship is where security exists. That's why the king can be secure. If most people in our culture were in his shoes and knowing that there were nations and other leaders conspiring against us, what would we do? We would find political alliances. We would try to build up a bigger army. We would find worldly ways in which we could defeat these potential threats, which is the story of all of salvation history. That's what the Kings of Israel always do. But what is the King whose name means Messiah supposed to fall back on when there is trouble, when there is murmuring, when there's conspiring, it's the fact that God is his father. The fact that God has said to me, this day I have begotten you, right? So notice that he's supposed to fall back, not on his strength, but on God's care for him, which is why Jesus in the gospels reiterates this and tries to convince his followers that they shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow, about the next day or about next year. And the reason that he gives is basically, look, if your heavenly father is taking care of the sparrows, why don't you think he's going to take care of you? Which is our being brought into Psalm 2 in a certain sense and our kingly reality, right? So what else do we learn about the king? God says to him in verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, right? So if this were a psalm in David's lifetime, this is a pretty gutsy statement, right? Because this doesn't take place. Because technically in the Old Testament, the Davidic kingship was limited to the Middle East, this part of Palestine, if that. But yet it says that God has promised his kingdom to the nations, to the ends of the earth. So somehow David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands that this kingdom that God will give his son Solomon will extend beyond its boundaries, will extend beyond, you know, political uh, realities and encompass the ends of the earth. Which, you know, when the early Christians described this fact and the fulfillment of this, what word did they use to describe this promise? They used the word catholicos. Because they're like, oh, there's a universality to that everlasting kingdom. And so, again, one of the four marks of the church, it is Catholic. In other words, that it breaks political bounds. I I was telling some of my seminarians this morning how remarkable if you think about even anthropologically or historically, Christianity is the first religion in human history that is not primarily based in an ethnicity or a geography. Mm -hmm. No other religion can claim that, except Christianity. And the big fight in early Christianity was between Gentile and Jew, and who was better and who had a superior status. And the Lord is trying to break down those. But no other religion had ever dared to actually propose that before. So this is this is a very big deal. But the early Christians looked back on this and they saw the fulfillment that David could never see. They saw the fulfillment that Solomon can never see, which I think is very beautiful. So as we read the Psalms, I just want to understand this basic Hebrew idea that defined the idea of kingship. Right? It's
0: also, I mean, it's also if I if I may, may may you th- this. Psalm, in that Christian context, is the reason why um, Christian anti-Semitism is such a profound contradiction and, a, and such a profound blasphemy, is that's that absolutely we're, right. we're, we're the, the grace that our ancestors, and then by extension us, were grafted into this promise should be extraordinarily humbling for anyone who isn't come, coming from Israel, yeah, right? That's
1: absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's scandalous to, yeah. to do that. It's profoundly sinful yeah. because this is our, this is our reality. But again, this has been the the temptation of the church from the beginning. Yeah. That, that, that to see this one, one way or the other. And actually it's flip flopped from the time of the acts of the apostles. And we go back and forth because this is what human beings want to do. All right. Let's close this Psalm out really quick. Uh, so for these, these murmurings and these plotting and grumbling nations, it says in verse 9, The Lord shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And now therefore, O kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. With trembling, kiss his feet. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So, um, blessed are those who take refuge in him. What what holds these two psalms together is the two kinds of haggahs, right? The haggah of the righteous man, chewing, meditating, growling, purring, crying, weeping, laughing over God's word. And the haggah of the wicked man, plotting for more power, plotting for more authority, plotting against. And notice that the psalm lumps together the Lord and his anointed, over and over. The Lord and his anointed, the Lord and his anointed. And does
0: that end up being that unity of the Lord and his anointed end up being the sort of driving theme of book one of Psalms. Is that what we're... The
1: unity, the, the driving theme of book one is the Torah and how we are always to return to it. Because again, what it's saying, we talked about Psalm 119 last time. If we want to avoid sin, if we want to avoid becoming unrighteous, we must take the law, the Torah of the Lord upon our heart. So it's constantly driving us back to the Torah and it's constantly driving us back to the reality of the Messiah, the reality of the kingship, the sacramental nature of the kingship and the king pointing toward the God who Ultimately, is is the reality that, uh, to which he points,
0: it's and how Psalms. does that play out in Psalm seventy-one, which closes the which closes the um, the book, and how we're going to close forty-one. Excuse me, Psalm forty-one, oh, closes psalm 41 which closes the book, and how we're going to close today.
1: Yeah, Psalm forty-one, which closes out the book, uh, is a much more practical psalm, and it kind of uh, is what is meant to sort of bring all of this together in a certain sense into a head. So I want to read it with you. Um, we began by saying blessed. Uh, Blessed is those who who sit in the, who does not sit in the way of scoffers and the, the, I'm forgetting the words of it, but talking about what it means to be blessed and what it means to be righteous. Now, at the end of this, it comes back and we have another Psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor. So in a certain sense, we have a kind of accusation on the kingship of Israel to close out this psalm. Again, we're recounting salvation history. And one of the things the kings fail to do regularly, we're considering the poor. It was actually one of the marks in the Old Testament. It's one of the things the prophets returned to that the, the kings didn't do. The Lord is delivering, delivers him in the day of trouble. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land who does not give up Uh, To give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sick bed, which David was. In his illness, thou healedest all of his infirmities. Um, it talks about the Lord's graciousness. It talks about the Lord seeing us and seeing the reality of the sacramental nature played out in the king. And I'll just close this up here in verse 11. It says, by this, I know that thou art pleased with me. And again, remember, if this is coming out of the mouth of David, David did a lot to be proud of and a lot to be ashamed of. And again, what the Psalms show us more than anything else is the interior life of a man who recognized his place, I, I think eventually in the plan and in the story of God. And David says, if we put in this in the mouth of David, by this I know that thou art pleased with me, even though I sinned, in that my enemy has not triumphed over me, but thou hast upheld me because of my integrity and set me in in thy presence forever. And then like every one of the books, it closes with this blessing. So blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen, which is how all the books sort of close. So we're reminded of the kingship, we're reminded of what David's actual place is. And for a church who read this through a Christological lens, we're reminded of the ways in which the church must always be warned to not fall into the ways of the wicked. We don't give in to grumbling, we don't give in to plotting, we don't give in to murmuring, which is what Israel always does when she's at her worst. And in rare times that we see the glimmer of who she ought to be, it is because she is haggahing and murmuring the words of the Torah.
0: We are moving through the Psalms, and this week we have seen uh, in book one of the Psalms, the kingship of David, this call to the Torah, this call to meditate and return to the law of the Lord, to keep God's word on our lips. And and especially I'm just struck by the sort of sacramentality, as you say, of Israel as a kind of um, pointing to uh, God the Father. What what will we see in book two?
1: Yeah, so tomorrow, I'm sorry, next week, We're going to see book two, which is a continuation of this theme of the Messianic Psalms, of finding the Lord in the Torah, finding the Lord in creation. But also they start to get dark and we begin to see some downfall. We begin to see a little bit more of the story of Solomon and his downfall sort of recalled and what to do when it seems like everything's headed off the rails.
0: Great. I will... (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say I look forward to that, but I'll look well, forward to it because you'll be our teacher. And I will look forward to you guiding us through that. Excellent. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and Ed NJD Production. I'm your host and pillar editor in chief, JD Flynn, joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. And this week, if you would, haga on the law of the Lord.